This is the message for this morning. Last week was trust part one. Who is our trust in? And we talked about having a laser focus trust on God, right? There's a lot of things in this world that are calling our attention. Like right now, I feel like I have nobody's attention at all. Um, but uh, God wants us to place our trust in him. And uh, we looked at some passages last week, uh, a long passage actually. And then this week, trust part two, what is our trust in? And I want to encourage you this morning to have your trust in the wisdom and the knowledge of the scriptures. Now, that sounds like a Sunday school answer. So we're going to get into this just a little bit. The wisdom and the knowledge from the scriptures. We live in a crazy world, right? I mean, you think that the world should be going in this direction, and then most of it's going in the other direction. You've always pointed up like this, but a lot of people are pointing up like this now. And, and you say, which way? And they say, that way, like that. And it's a crazy world that we live in. Um, a lot of stuff going on. The problem is, you're not sure if there's more stuff going on, or just that you know about more of it now than you used to know. And those of you who are older know that we didn't used to know all this stuff not too many years ago. There was no way for us to get that information, but now there is. We know more than humans have ever known, but I feel like we have less wisdom and understanding in, in, than humans have had in a long time. It's like the more that we know, the less wisdom and understanding we have. So I wanna throw this word out to you. The word is epistemology. Epistemology is just the study of knowledge. It's like, how do we know, how do people know things? And how do they know that what they know is actually right? And, and how do you sort between knowledge and opinion, right? So epistemology is the theory of knowledge, the study of knowledge. How do followers of Jesus know that what they know is true and what they believe is correct. And how do we know that what we're hearing in our world, we hear a lot about fake news and nobody knows who to believe or what to trust anymore. How do we sort that out? So I wanna take you to a passage in Psalm 119. This is a fantastic passage. I, I'm, I'm gonna love to read this to you. Psalm 119 verse 97. And it's just that section. These are all sections of eight verses throughout the 119th Psalm, which, by the way, is the longest chapter in the Bible. And it starts out like this. It says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have, I have, um, I have more insight than all my teachers for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. As a follower of Jesus, we believe that the Bible is the foundation of truth and understanding and knowledge and eternal information. 
But should we? Should we? We've learned a lot in the last number of years. We have the internet now. We've got multiplied knowledge upon knowledge. It's not, it is not our New Testament world anymore. Is something thousands of years old, is it really trustworthy today? Or have we outgrown the scriptures? This question is going on and on. In fact, you, you can Google dozens, probably hundreds of reasons not to trust the Bible. You could probably Google all the mistakes in Scripture and find them list after list because you can put anything on the Internet. So I want to ask the question, should we, should we still trust the Bible? And I want us to look at four reasons that are normally stated why we should trust the Bible. And let's see if they still remain true today. And I, I approached this kind of open-handed, and I said, let, let me see, let me, look, let me look at four of the top reasons why people have always taught that you could trust the Scriptures. And you know, a lot of, a lot of pillars of society and pillars of knowledge have fallen in the last number of years. So I wanted to look, and what I realized was, I put four down, but then I realized, really, the number one reason I think that you should be able to trust the Scriptures is the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus, one who was dead, defeated death, and became alive. However, if the Scriptures are not reliable and trustworthy, that then calls into question even the resurrection. So, lest you get any more nervous, let's... Let's move forward. Those four reasons why I think uh, have been taught for a long time that you should be able to trust the Scriptures. Number one is that there's this vast collection of manuscripts. I read an article where the guy said, um, uh, 24,000 manuscripts, who cares? And then he went on to write all this stuff about why these, this collection really doesn't matter and this collection doesn't matter and these aren't really Greek manuscripts and these have holes all shot through them. And, and I got to the end of this thing and I thought, okay, well, there's one guy's opinion. I could, read, I could read for years on the internet of all those kinds of opinions. But there are almost actually 6,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament almost 6,000. And there's 18,000 manuscripts in other languages. And the average size of a New Testament manuscript is 450 pages. There, these ancient manuscripts that are not Greek are in Latin, Coptic, Syriac, and Armenian. And they number in the tens of thousands. And, and you realize that there is what one author calls an embarrassment of riches when it comes to New Testament manuscripts. So that tells me this for sure, that the text is real. It's not made up. It wasn't like 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago, somebody sat down and wrote all these books and gave them all these different names, that these manuscripts date back and they connect with other uh, evidence uh, in the known world back then. Uh, a lot of extra biblical articles and uh, manuscripts, historical facts, historical truths. So we know that the Bible was written and we've got it and it was really written, but is it true? So the second 
reason people say that we should trust the scriptures is that there's an agreement across authors, that there are at least 40 something authors of scripture. And they write over the course of 1500 years, they write in several different languages and then on several different continents. And there's an agreement, there's, a, there's a, a, an outstanding agreement of what the beginning of the Bible says about God and what the end of the Bible says about God and what the middle of the Bible says about God. You see a lot of agreement. Now you'll have people tell you, oh no, there's the God of the Old Testament, the God of vengeance and the God of war, and the God of violence, and then there's this God of the New Testament, who's the God of grace and the God of mercy. And so you have to go on a study of that because when you look at scripture, you could think that. If you're just like, if you're just looking, if you're just looking at the field and you're only going down about an inch or an inch and a half, you could see some differences and you could wonder, hmm, what's going on? But when you start digging and you do a thorough inspection, then there's, uh, there's opportunities to understand scripture uh, that I don't have time to explain right now. And I've just given you one of the, probably one of the biggest mysteries of scripture when you've got this God of war in the Old Testament and this God of love your enemies in the New Testament. And that's a, that's a huge study and it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating study. Having said that, there's huge agreement across scripture. There's stuff that the New Testament authors write about that completely dovetails and fulfills what the Old Testament prophets uh, wrote about and uh, uh, the, the poets wrote about and the wisdom literature writes about. So there's, there's an amazing agreement. The Bible's a beautiful tapestry of writings, which only when read together in total provide the complete revelation of God to humanity. So Moses, David, and the prophets and the apostles, they all describe God as holy, righteous, loving, and glorious. And they speak of the Messiah in both future and past tenses, and in their day, present tense, in remarkably similar ways. The third reason we should trust the scripture, so they say, is that Jesus fulfills Old Testament writings. You've heard that before, right? You've heard that, that Jesus fulfilled scripture, right? He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So this guy named Steve, not Larson, but Steve Lawson with uh, Legionnaire Ministries, he wrote, um, he wrote this thing about Jesus fulfilling Old Testament teaching. And it was so good that I just, I copied it and I wanna read it to you. But it's Steve Lawson and he wrote this. He wrote, the greatest fulfillments of prophecy are found at the first coming of Christ. Not even the second coming, but at the first coming. So all of what I'm about to read to you, and you'll recognize it, was prophesied in the Old Testament about Jesus, that he would be born of the seed of Abraham, the seed of Jesse and the seed of David, that he would be born of a virgin. A lot of these are in Isaiah, 600 years before Jesus, that he would be called Emmanuel, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, that great persons would come to adore him, there would be the killing of children in Bethlehem. He would be called out of Egypt, that he would be preceded by a forerunner, that he would be anointed with the Holy Spirit, 
that he'd be a prophet like Moses, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that he would be entering into his public ministry in Galilee, that he would be entering publicly into Jerusalem and come into the temple, that he would live in poverty and meekness, tenderness and compassion, that he would be without deceit, full of zeal, that this Messiah would come preaching with parables, working miracles, bearing reproach, that he would be rejected by his own Jewish brethren, that the Jews and Gentiles together would, would combine together against him, that he would be betrayed by a friend, that his disciples would forsake him, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver and that that price would be given to buy a potter's field. The Old Testament teaches that this Messiah would die with intense suffering, yet be silent under that suffering, that he would be struck on the cheek, that his visage would be marred, that he would be spit upon and scarred, that his hands and his feet would be nailed to the cross, that he would be forsaken by God, that he would actually cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he would be mocked, that gall and vinegar would be offered to him. The Old Testament teaches that the coming Messiah, his garments would be parted, lots would be cast for his clothing, that he'd be numbered among the transgressors, that he would intercede for his murderers. He would die, but not a bone of his body would be broken. He would be pierced long before crucifixion would ever be invented. He would be buried with the rich. His flesh would not see corruption. He would be raised from the third day. He would ascend back to the right hand of God the Father. And then Stephen Lawson finishes with this paragraph. All of this recorded hundreds of years before Jesus ever entered this world. And many of these prophecies are fulfilled not by his friends, but by his enemies who stand to lose the most with their fulfillment. And many of these prophecies being fulfilled before he was born, while he's in his mother's womb, and while he is in the grave. And I would say, uncle. The Old Testament recorded all of those things about Jesus that when we read the New Testament, so many of those things are written almost as quotes, certainly as allusions back, alluding back to what was written in the Old Testament. Jesus' fulfillment of these Old Testament writings is overwhelming testimony of the truthfulness and trustworthiness of Scripture. So not only do we know because we've got thousands of manuscripts that this was actually written over a long period of time, and we're still discovering manuscripts to this day. But when we read simply the predictions, the prophecies, the prophets on the coming Messiah, we're convinced. We were in a staff meeting recently, and somebody in the staff meeting said, you know, when you, when you read the Bible and you, you start really reading it, you start comparing this scripture with that, you start making connections and connecting the dots and, and you realize there's no way that anybody just sat down and like just wrote this. This, the God was actually at work revealing himself through his word. So that's the third thing. There's one more thing. Why should I trust the scriptures? The disciples' testimony in their lives 
Remember when Jesus said, yo, 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 follow me, come follow me. Yo, you guys, you guys, leave your nets, come on, come follow me. Yo, Levi, come on, leave, leave that money, come follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. You remember how marred and flawed the disciples were? You remember how, how grittily human they were? They, they couldn't do it. They could not follow Jesus the way they wanted to follow him. And when he went to the cross, where were they? They were scattered, which by the way, right, was predicted in scripture. And they fulfilled it. But then what happened? Jesus died and they were scattered. But then what happened? He rose again. And they had some confusion. And then what happened? He showed up and spoke to them. And they had hope, still somewhat disbelieved. And then what happened? He said, meet me on the mountain. And they get there and it says, some doubted. And he said, go into all the world and, and make disciples. And then what happened? He sent the Holy Spirit, his spirit, into the lives of the disciples, into our hearts, into our lives. And then what happened? They were changed. They were changed. And they went around telling people, you know, this Jesus, he's alive. He's not dead anymore. We've seen him. He's alive. And it's in his name that sins can be forgiven. And it's faith in him that can take you from death to life and from darkness to light and from an eternity separated from God to eternity connected to God. And they said, no, the, the, the religious leader said, no, stop, stop teaching that. Don't do this anymore. Get, get out of the streets. Don't teach this. And what did they say? They said, we can't help but speak the things that we have seen and heard and experienced. And they talked about Jesus. And they, it is said that all of them, except for John, went to their death. They were crucified. It said that a couple of them were crucified upside down because they didn't feel like they had the dignity of being crucified like their Lord was. Guys don't die for a lie. They don't. They don't. When, when people conspire together to cover up something and the heat starts to penetrate and the pressure comes on, somebody's going to crack. Somebody says, no, that's not true. No, this is the truth. This is the truth. And they're going to tell the truth. They're going to crack. But these guys never cracked. They didn't. What about Stephen in the book of Acts where he's getting stoned and he's looking up and he sees Jesus at the right hand. Heaven's open and he sees Jesus. Jesus says, you're getting stoned for me, Stephen. I want you to see me. And Jesus isn't seated at the right hand, but he's standing as Stephen is getting stoned. People don't get stoned for a lie, not for a lie. So the disciples' testimony and lives attest to the fact that the scripture is true, that it's true. Okay, no more slides. Um, If you're not reading this on a regular basis, and this isn't one of those do-gooder messages, right? Oh, you gotta read your Bibles, you mark it off, you know, follow the reading plan, whatever. Hey, follow a reading plan, that'd be awesome, because then it happens. 
But if you're not, like, if you're not getting the truth of God into your life, you're falling for any old lie coming down the pike. There are more lies coming down the pike right now than ever in human history. They're coming down the slipstream internet slide of deceit and you, I mean, you name it, describe it however you want to. And if you don't have the truth to help you divine and and discern and sort opinion from like knowledge and truth, what do you have? You don't have anything. And if you come to Community Heights, I'm just gonna tell you, as the pastor, you you gotta be in God's word. You've got to read it. You've gotta be familiar with it. Okay, put up that, put up that one slide toward the end there. Put it up, let me see what it is. Yeah, they're, they're, they're coming. I told them no more slides. You guys probably shut it down, didn't you? Okay, here we go. The one right before that one. Yeah, what does scripture say about money? What does scripture say about sex? What does it say about power? If you're not reading it, you're not gonna know. You know what the world says about money, get more. You know what the world says about sex, get more. You know what the world says about greed, Uh, get more. You know what the world says about war, win. About violence, when necessary. About the poor, avoid them, don't give anything to them. About the immigrant, they should stay out. About the imprisoned, they're bad. About the sick, well, maybe we ought to go visit them. Even the world might say that. But what does the Bible say about money? What does the Bible say about sex? What does the Bible say about power? My favorite passage, when Jesus realized that the Father had put everything in his authority, it says that he he got his garments wrapped up and he got down on his hands and knees and he took a towel and he washed his disciples' feet. That's what he did. Put that slide back up. Please, please. That's what he did with power. Um, I'm looking at it here on the screen, guys. Thank you. Um, What's the Bible say about war and greed and violence? What does the Bible say about it? What does the Bible say about the poor? What is the Bible? We know what our society says about the immigrant, and we've all got opinions, but what does the Bible say about the immigrant? What does the Bible say about those who are in prison? Lock up the key, lock them up, throw away the key? What does the Bible say about the sick? And how does what the Bible teaches on these things impact my beliefs, my opinions, and how I live? Because quite frankly, we don't really care what the world has to say. We don't care what the politics or civic leaders or we don't care what people have to say. We don't care what the opinion page says or editorials or all that. We don't, I mean, okay, we can read that stuff and it's good to learn and grow. But it's what the Bible has to say. But if we're not reading it, we're not going to know what does the Bible have to say. So epistemology and where we get knowledge, this is the anchor. This is the foundation. And that everything goes on top. So who, trust. Who do we trust in? We trust in God. What do we trust? We, we can trust God's word because it's, it's his revelation to us of everything he wants us to know. So if you've never really read the Bible, you don't like, I don't really, I don't know anything about the Bible. So go about 80% of the way through it and find the book of John. 
and read the book of John. It's the story about Jesus. And just read through John. You could read through it in an hour. You could read through it in an hour. Just read the gospel of John. And then go from there. Get with somebody that you know, they know the Bible. Ask them, what what should I read? Will you study with me? We have to be people of God's word. Because if we don't stand on this, as they say, we'll just fall for anything. And man, not today. Don't do that today. Don't fall for anything today. Because there's a lot of anythings out there. So, let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. God, would you give us, we've got so much coming at us. We've got so, I know all of these people, Lord, everyone's busy, everyone's got more to do than they have time to do it. And we get stressed and we get selfish because we want our own time. And sometimes your word gets pushed out of our lives. So Lord, I pray that that you would help us, help us to, walk with you and to read your word. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us through it? Would you you counsel us? Would you guide us by your commands and by your word? God, this week, I pray that you would use us as we go out from here to make a difference in the world we live in because we love your word. And Lord, I pray if there's one here this morning who has never asked this Messiah who came to die for the sins of the world to be their savior, to forgive their sins. God, I pray that you would work in their heart. And I pray that they would call out to you and be forgiven. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We look ahead with anticipation and with joy to this week and the opportunities we have to to live, to love, and to serve. We love you, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you are dismissed, have a great week. And the deal is still on, if anybody can show me their screen with the text on it.